this is Jonathan Abbott. And Joseph Del Santos. And we are Health Conscious Radio, coming to you live from Cornell University. And this week will be round two of our student conversation with Freddie, Madi, and Sana. And what are we going to be talking about today, Joe? We'll be talking a little bit about international health, and then also about a personal experience from one of our Sloanies. Uh, with that being said, it's a great conversation, and are you ready to jump into it? Yeah, let's do it. I guess this kind of lends to kind of the next conversation that we want to have in terms of comparing the health systems between the U.S. and Canada, as so we've mm. been talking about, and Nicaragua, because that's where uh, Freddie or was at during his time at the Peace Corps. I guess since we kind of talked about the U.S. and a little bit about Canada, do you, do you want to talk to us about kind of Nicaragua and your, your experiences with that system? Sure, we could fill up an entire podcast series with that. <laughs> um, just a plug for Nicaragua, it's an incredible place, everyone should go see it. Uh, so I was very fortunate to be able to work within uh, the Ministry of Health in Nicaragua. So I actually was able to, by the time I left, I was plugged in at the regional, local, and national level. So I got to see a lot of what goes on there. Um, the greatest aspect is that it is free for every single citizen of the country. And uh, somehow they don't have long wait lines like they do in Canada. Uh, unfortunately, the quality of care is much, much lower. Um, the good thing is you go into a hospital, you know, and they're all kind of ambulatory centers. And you go in, you have a fever, you'll be seen immediately, but medications are not always there. Um, you might have to wait maybe an hour to see the doctor. And what they do is they kind of do it in two shifts. So you come in at like 6 a.m. to be able to be seen at 8, and come in at 12 to be able to see at 1. The facility is open from 8 to 4. After that, the residents come in, and it's kind of only for emergencies. What a lot of the people have is kind of what we have here in the United States, which is employer-based insurance. And if you work for any kind of organization within the country that is sustainable enough to provide that, you do have your own insurance. Now, that those centers are a little bit better. They're kind of their own individual hospitals, but they're still not to the level that you would see here in the United States. And then the third part of that is they have really world-class medicine. And um, thankfully, when I got really sick, I, I was sent there because uh, I'm pretty sure I would have died elsewhere. Um, the interesting thing about Nicaragua is that the people that inhabit the country, they they know the system isn't very good, but they still lend themselves to go. But they don't go if it's an emergency. They, they think a lot of times they have a better chance of surviving if they do something at home than if they go to the actual um, hospital. Unfortunately, when I was in training, uh, which is a three-month period, two of the volunteers that I was serving with, they actually recommended that someone go to the hospital. And the woman died on the way to the hospital. And the two volunteers that I was with were both EMTs. They tried to do CPR. They broke her ribs. It was a whole kind of legal case. And the family, to this day, still argues that she should have stayed at home. She could have survived. Uh, so there's still this education aspect that goes in into what needs to happen when you have a stroke, when you are having a myocardial infection. Anything that provides you or needs you to get to a hospital immediately, it's very interesting, just the education that goes in there, which is part of what I was doing there, right? Um, I don't think a system like Nicaragua could survive in the United States just because of the fragmentation that we have, the different socioeconomical classes. And also, um, you know, Americans are... They don't tend to buy into a lot of things. Uh, change is not necessarily one of our favorite things to do. So what it did teach me, though, was 
that even at the bottom level, you had incredible physicians. Because what they do is they have two years that are required, if you will, like social service. So most people study in Managua, which is the capital, or they also have a scholarship program with Cuba. And Cuba has pretty good medicine for the area. And for two years, you have to go and serve in the most rural areas of the country where a lot of Peace Corps volunteers are. So we actually were able to link up really well. And for those two years, you kind of, you know, help bring up the medicine in that area. A lot of times you have buy-in from the physicians. They don't really want to be there. Uh, you have distrust in the medical system from the patients, but they are definitely trying. Um, Nicaragua has other problems that they're trying to focus on, but uh, the current administration is trying to put healthcare at the top of the list. Great. Thanks for sharing your experience. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I have a question. Sure. I'm, I'm a little curious. So... Um, you spoke about patients not wanting to go into the emergency. Uh, why was that? Was it an issue of like distance? Like, you know, it, it really lends to to a couple of things. And you know, I will say as a di- disclaimer, I'm going to say some negative things here about the system. Um, as a whole, I had a really great experience, and I think it's a great country. With that said, um, there is a little bit of mistreatment of the patients. You know. Mm-hmm. If you go into the hospital and you're pregnant here, even if you're 14 years old, you know, they say, you know, we're going to take care of you. There, there's very much of a stigma. Like, you're adding to our stereotype, like, stop getting pregnant. Um, No one wants to go to the hospital if they're going to get berated, right? There's also times where you would go to the hospital and not be seen because the one specialist is gone. So you, you know, if you live 16 miles up the road, which to us doesn't seem like anything, but... You know, you have to take buses, you have to cross rivers, you really have to go on horseback, you know, as much as that sounds, that's crazy. Some of these places have no water, no transportation, no electricity. So if you made the four-hour trek, and you left at 3 a.m. to be there at 7, and at 10 a.m. they finally saw you and they say they can't they can't do anything for you, then you have to make the four-hour trek back. You know, at that point, you have to make the decision at home when something happens, like, do we do anything and actually go in? Or do we rely on what are called parteras, which are kind of, you know, community health workers who work on a volunteer basis to provide those services? And part of what I did in my role there was we tried to increase the community health role. So they connected physicians with nurses, with nursing assistants, with these parteras, these community health workers, with midwives. And the really the basis of their healthcare system is that they know that their actual physician count is really low. Their nurse count is really low, so they really depend on these volunteers out in these communities where they live, and without it, the system would collapse immediately. And, uh, you know, you could hear that from the Ministry of Health themselves. They know that they really need to rely on these people. So that's what would a lot of times end up happening. So we, we took a lot of time to train these midwives, these community health workers in the medical centers, and then we would send them back out, trained uh, with equipment and the knowledge to be able to hopefully help these little communities where they came from. I had a follow-up question to that. Yeah. She's very curious, but do you think, aside from the distance, but the example that you mentioned, do you think it's more like culture or religion that kind of drives them to not go and seek out um, help for medicine? Yeah, so it, it really depends on the community. So unfortunately, there is also a, re- a religious divide in the country, uh, and there's a lot of stigma attached to a lot of things. You know, the Latino culture as a whole carries a lot of implications that are kind of that lie in the if you will in the sentiment of the of the of the country the population the the culture which a lot of times you don't see unless you've kind of been exposed to it and 
you know, there's this this case of, well, your dad did it, your mom did it without it, why do you need it? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they're, they're doing this and that at the hospital. You don't really need that. Like, just go tend to the fields, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Or do you want to go to school or do you want to go to the doctor? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you don't even have the ability to go to school. For some reason, your parents don't let you go to school. You're like, we have a lot of work to do. We're, you're obviously already not going to school. Like, why would you think you could go to the doctor? I think part of it as well is people have had bad experiences mm-hmm. and they lend that to, well, if your uncle had a bad experience, you might have had a, a bad experience. Um, and again, it goes all the way back to education. You know, we we just competed on a case competition. I won't name who it was, um, but we had very, very little data. And a lot of one of the things that we saw, which was kind of innocuous, was that the the brand awareness of this place that we were looking at was really low, but it was an incredible place. Um, so if that's an incredible place and it has horrible brand awareness, how do you go in this rural, rural country that might have an actually pretty good hospital, but the brand awareness is still going to be shot because of, you know, 10 years of what happened before. So, you know, to answer your question, I think it's a combination of both religious and just treatment. Uh, again, I will say they are making efforts going forward. Mm-hmm. You got to remember it's a war torn country. They had a civil war in the 80s that, you know, really destroyed the population. The median age of the country is like 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like 80% females. Most of the males our age, Joe and John, are pretty much have died away. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, if you will, you know, in Julie's class, we learned a lot about population health metrics and upstream and downstream determinants of health. The incredible thing that Peace Corps teaches you is that it's a much grander issue. Mm-hmm. But at the Ministry of Health level, um, I, I can say confidently that they're doing better than other ministries. doesn't mean they're, they're at a good level, but they're definitely improving. And we're trying to close that bridge to get patients to be able to trust their doctors. Okay. I guess there are some parallels between kind of Canada and the U.S. Or U.S. and kind of Nicaragua. Like people were like, well, we want to go to the doctor, but like, you know, is it really necessary? Um, so I guess we're, I guess, ways or I guess things to consider in terms of bridging that gap. So that patients, when they actually, when they need to go to the doctor, or when they should go to the doctor, that they go to the doctor and kind of get the care that they need. Yeah. And, and going back to that, Joe, before we move on, um, Nicaragua is on its way up, but there are a lot of countries in, the, in Latin America that really do it well. Um, we don't have enough time to go into it in this in this podcast, but uh, places like Costa Rica, uh, places like Argentina, places like Mexico, Costa Rica especially, they have free healthcare service for their country, but they have some of the best doctors in the region. People will go to Costa Rica to get their medicine, and they have a huge expat population. So the expats pay an exorbitant amount of money, but they actually prefer that than going all the way back to the United States to seek care. You also have partnerships with all the other doctors in the Central American region to go study there, um, and their hospitals are state-of-the-art. Um, I took a couple trips there when I was in Nicaragua, and I was able to tour a hospital, and it, it's like walking into Cuba Medical here. It's So there really is a lot to lend from, and I think a lot of times we look across the pond to Europe, and I think some of the things that are going on in like Denmark and Sweden are, are kind of hard to replicate just because of the size of us to them, but I think it would it would behoove the U.S. administration to look at some of the examples in Latin America and see if we can bring that up to the United States. Could you speak to the sort of the holistic medicine idea? Because I know in the U.S. we have this idea it's just you know, treat, treatment at the doctor or at the hospital and that's it, you know, treatment ends there. But it's my understanding, understanding that in Canada or in Latin America, it's, it's more so a holistic view of medication. So did you see that in your experience or was it still kind of the Western? Um, I mean, recently when I went back home during winter break, 
I saw my PCP and it was so, I found it odd, but she's such a sweet lady, bless her heart. <laughs> no, because she sat down with me and she's like, how's school going, Sana? How are your grades? How is the culture overall? And I'm like, wow, you know, I was like, that's so nice of you to ask. And I just told her everything, but it is a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. And her being... Um, a family doctor and a doctor mm. for everyone in my family mm. so she knows oh I got to check up on this stuff for you guys mm. and it's a holistic approach that she takes to treating all of us mm -hmm. for sure yeah and do you, do you think that's was beneficial in your experience I think always that? like always, yeah. I've seen it throughout mm -hmm. um I was raised in Canada so I've seen it throughout and I've been her patient for her I don't know how long, but even with my cardiologist, I've been his patient for all, more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. So definitely I see it throughout. And then here, when I go to the urgent care, it's just like, I need to tell you all my history and you need to know, you need to know everything, but mm -hmm. they're not very, you know, specific mm -hmm. in asking mm -hmm. everything. So. Right, right. Are, what is the breakdown in terms of physicians at Canada? Are there mostly, or in terms of MD and DOs? Are there like significantly more DOs, and do you think that lends to that kind of holistic view? Um, I'm not sure about the breakdown, and I think, I think it's a lot more MDs just because there's a lot more immigrant doctors coming from um, different countries. But I will tell you this: that my sister is a DO, and Canada has a need of doctors. So they're low on their family physicians and their PCPs. So I guess they will be taking DOs. And so why do you think, uh, briefly, why do you think that is that they uh, have a shortage of doctors? I mean, there's so many medical students who want to be doctors, but... Well, comparing medical schools in the U.S. and Canada, mm -hmm. Canada only has, I think, about 14 to 15 medical schools. So they're not producing mm -hmm. that much doctors. A lot mm -hmm. of the Canadian students end up going to Caribbean medical schools. Mm -hmm. And so Caribbean students end up doing their residency in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then from there, they have they end up working in the U.S. Mm -hmm. afterwards, or they do go back. But mm -hmm. then if they do go back and they want to work in the urban areas, well, that's very populated with all these doctors. And so for them to work in the rural area, well, I mean, it's up mm -hmm. to their preference too, but it's similar in the rural health uh, disparities as the U.S. For the medical schools, does Canada, does like the government have incentives to put people out in those rural regions? You know, in the U.S., they've been starting to do it the past few years. And Freddie mentioned Nicaragua that they're like everyone's required to do two years of service out in the community. Mm -hmm. um, so, are they doing something similar in Canada? Um, not that I know of. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but like my sister went through medical school in the U.S., so I don't know much about the medical schools. Everyone I've heard has gone through medical school in the Caribbean or the U.S., so I'm not sure about Canada, but I would imagine so that they would probably have these programs in place. Um, yeah, like my sister, she went to Torah College, and they had that do your rotations in a rural area, so she did her rotations in Binghamton or... Um, Near Monticello, there's a new Newburgh, I think, or a middle town that you could do your rotations there too. So Toro has that program in place, but that's for the U.S. Yes, I, I think we've done a lot of uh, sort of exploring of international medical systems. So I think it'd be great to sort of compare and contrast the U.S. system to the international system. So Madi, I know you know just listening to what uh, Sana and Freddie have had to say, as well as using your experience in both the U.S. and internationally when you traveled. What, what are some of the pros and cons 
and what what sort of examples can you see that we could get in the U.S. from international systems? Well, I did not actually go to any um, clinics or anything internationally, mm -hmm. um, but I will say that depending on the area that you're being treated in, like I'm from Milwaukee, and so for me, um, I was uh, low SES, and for me, I never was able to go to those nicer doctors, those um, nicer facilities where I would get better treatment. Um, just because um, the busing system wasn't as much as it could, um, as developed as it should be, um, we, it was cheaper to go to urgent care centers for us. And because of our low SES, that was often preferable because we wouldn't get these extra little waiting room fees and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, um, oh, and on top of that, the buses were kind of, you know, dangerous sometimes mm -hmm. in Milwaukee. It was rare for me to see like a state of the art facilities, um, mm -hmm. to get, really good quality of care mm -hmm. so i think i think accessibility is a major theme especially when it comes to quality uh, for patients in the u.s and i was in a metropolitan area but i still felt like really nice hospitals like freighter were just like out of reach for me just because of my ses so mm -hmm. i think working on accessibility and bringing those um, nicer facilities into more urban areas definitely helped the market mm -hmm. And that kind of sounds uh, similar to uh, what you were saying, Freddie, about accessibility and sort of, you know, getting, taking the transportation from your house to the hospital. So do you, th what, what sort of solutions can you see uh, in that, the scope of that? Well, I think um, having larger systems in certain areas bring more community health centers. Mm -hmm. um, that would help a lot because mm -hmm. if you're able to walk to go see a doctor or, Mm -hmm. even take a bus where it's like a five minute ride. Mm -hmm. For example, I, when I would want to go to Freighter or something in Milwaukee, my family would get on the bus and it'd be mm -hmm. about an hour to an hour and a half on the bus, um, switching from one bus to another. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really convenient for us. And mm -hmm. if Freighter or any other like large um, hospital in Milwaukee would say, yeah, let's introduce more urgent care centers mm -hmm. into um, low SES um, areas within the city, then mm -hmm they would be able to help the community a lot more. Yeah, what, what, uh, just interested, was it a cost issue or is it more just convenience of the time it took to get there? I think it was think? both for sure. Okay. Um, the timing, um, the timing again, like an hour and a half was very inconvenient. Mm -hmm. um, the safety of the buses, we weren't mm -hmm. sure if how long the appointment would take. If we were there until eight o'clock at night and we got on the buses, it would not mm -hmm. be safe. But then cost-wise, um, the state insurance in Wisconsin was really helpful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you don't want any unexpected fees. You never know when you're going to get one of those. Um, for example, um, I worked at a camp in the middle of Wisconsin, and I went into a hospital that was about 40 minutes away from where I was uh, for an ear infection. I knew I had an ear infection. It was very obvious. I went in. Um, I went into this lobby and I stood there and I waited about 20 minutes to be seen. And I went in, I said I had an ear infection. I left um, and I got my um, antibiotics out of a vending machine type thing. And a few months later when I got my bill, it was $1,200. And I was like, why am I getting a $1,200 charge for an ear infection? And I look at the itemized um, bill and it was like waiting room fee. 
they didn't have a waiting room. I was standing in the hallway, you know, and to have a waiting room fee of $150, that was really discouraging. And it's like, mm -hmm. why would I want to go drive 40 minutes to go mm -hmm. see a doctor just to have a $1,200 bill for an ear infection? Mm -hmm. And so I guess in that regard, I've, I've experienced rural and city health um, disparity. But if you think about it, yeah, in the city, there's a lot of different options. There's a, it's bustling. There's a lot of different people, but the issues were the same. Mm -hmm. It took a while to get there. Mm -hmm. The costs were unexpected. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we always talk about the contrast between urban and rural areas, but in a lot of ways, there are similarities with accessibility and cost issues. Do you know if you had any um, access to federally, federally qualified health centers? Were there any in Milwaukee, that area? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and if you think about it, that's a, that's another thing. That's another issue that can be brought up. So, for me, I I my family didn't even know like what our options were. We didn't know what services we could have. We didn't know the options for preventative services, and that can happen a lot for low SES families. You're not even encouraged to go to the doctor for preventative services. You don't know your options, and so. I don't even know if we did, honestly, because we didn't, we were never told. Public health initiatives are essential, especially just um, exposing individuals to their options to free services in the area. Um, especially those that might not have a smartphone. They might not be able to look up, oh, free clinic. Um, they don't know. So I think for larger hospitals to take um, more initiative in educating pu the public and individuals that are low SES to the options that they have for treatment and service um, is essential, and it's serving the community um, in multiple ways. So, um, yeah, I would definitely think that's great. <laughs> think we'll wrap up our conversation there. I have one question for yeah. Mari. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, sure. Mari and I are from, uh, you know, neighboring states, our, our, our home states, and there's just a mega merger that went on between one of the larger systems in Illinois with one of the larger systems in Wisconsin. And I actually had a lot of uh, exposure to a rural healthcare system when I was going to school in Milwaukee at Marquette. So I wanted to ask Mari what she thought about kind of that mega merger, which is going to make it one of the largest systems in the country between Advocate and Aurora? Well, I thought it was great, first of all, because I lived, um, Aurora actually had one of the larger hospitals that I could get to. They had a hospital on the south side called St. Luke's. 27th Street. Yeah, 27th yep. Street, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I was a south side girl, so that was, if I needed to go to an ER or something a little larger or the urgent care wasn't open, I would go there. So in that case, a merger would be great because then, you know, um, a new set of eyes could go into the facilities and say, hey, quality needs to be improved. The facility needs to be improved. Um, you guys are situated in the areas of Milwaukee that would benefit so great from this. And so, you know, we talked about mergers not being sustainable, but sometimes they are necessary and sometimes they are beneficial. I think this is great because then Aurora will have a new set of eyes looking at things that they could improve upon. And I'm, I mean, I'm really excited to see what happens when I go home. So um, we started off talking about mergers and, you know, and we're, st we're ending on a positive note. <laughs> not all mergers are bad. Yeah. You know, not all mergers are 
detrimental to the community in this situation because Aurora is situated in prime time areas in Milwaukee that need help. Um, I think it's going to be great. So I have to say, I got a double labor repair at Aurora Sinai, which is just a little bit north on Marquette's campus. And yeah. I got physical therapy there for six months. And I didn't pay attention to the carpet, but <laughs> I did have a good time. So I'm also excited to see what happens yeah. between the two states and the two systems. That was a great discussion, wouldn't you say, Joe? Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Madi, again, for sharing uh, your story with us. Yeah, thank you, Freddie and Sana, for also participating. It's great to see Sloanies participating in our podcast and reaching out to the masses. Yeah. Well, with that being said, uh, we're really looking forward to next week's episode. It's with Chris Tan. He's a fellow at Johns Hopkins University, um, and he has some really great insights on the future of healthcare. Yeah, definitely. And also check out our blog at Health conscious podcast.wordpress.com yeah see you guys next week <laughs>